following program is pre-recorded. America, bonjour, hi, Canada, Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is upon us as that music notes every single week, the last radio hour of the week, given over to important and big themes. And for many weeks of the last few months, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and Dean Stephen Smith of the English Department have been walking me, and thus you, through the history plays in a way that is a good introduction. And now I hope a, an invitation for you to go watch The Hollow Crown uh, on Netflix. Uh, Let's get right to it, because this is Richard III. This might be the payoff of payoffs. A lot of people say Henry V, but Richard III's the payoff of payoff, isn't it, Stephen Smith? Well, it is his big breakthrough play, and whenever I look at power rankings of Shakespeare plays, it's always way up there on the top, and, and typically over Henry V. So I don't know if that means tyranny is better for <laughs> But I've never seen a power ranking. The NBA and the NFL, they usually have the Cavs and the Browns on top. I've never seen a power ranking of the Shakespeare plays. <laughs> well, well, that ranking looks like this. All the plays are ranked very high, and then there's a long gap, and then there's somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> who was the guy who wrote at the same time, Ben Johnson? Didn't he hate that? Well, he was the you know the learned poet, and poor uh, he was Shakespeare's rival. But also, but he knew, right? He knew he was in second place. It was always going to be second place. Yeah, but I love Johnson. He said, you know, hey, look, when, after Shakespeare died, he said, I love the guy on the safe side of idolatry. All right, all right. <laughs> so let, let's talk about how we got here. For people who did not hear last week about Henry the Sixth, how do we end up at Richard the Third moving onto the scene? Okay, so Henry V dies, his son as an infant becomes the king, his son is pious but imprudent, the wars of the roses overwhelm England, the upshot of it, Edward IV wins, takes over, and his brother Richard III uh, ends the play by killing Henry and then beginning to plot his own tyranny. And I want to emphasize something that's in your outline, Dean Smith. It is good to study tyranny. What it is, how does it take hold, how to resist it? Richard III is a case study. And I'm going to go to you, Doctor. And I had a long conversation last week. It's over at the interview with Hugh Hewitt with a Boston Globe columnist who said Trump is an authoritarian and the Republican, you know, the whole blue bubble thing. They wouldn't know tyranny if it hit him in the nose. Honest to goodness, they wouldn't know a tyrant. Yeah, it, uh, I mean, there's a lot of things going on in politics these days that are lawless. Right, and they many of them involve law enforcement, and that's a grim sign, right? And uh, uh, here, this picture of tyranny in Shakespeare is powerful because it focuses upon a man, you know, one man, and and you get to see him, uh, you know, and and in relief, that is to say, take all the rest out. What do you get? A murderer of children to get power. And, and you know, the cause of that and the movement of that in the soul of the man, you can get a real picture of that. Now, we have tyrants on the front page. Every day. Putin is a tyrant. He kills people. He eliminates his enemies. He runs Russia. Xi is a tyrant's tyrant. Erdogan is a tyrant. Tyrants are not susceptible to limits. Is that not a good definition. They just make their rules. Well, the strict definition is uh, in Aristotle, of course, where, where it would be. 
Aristotle is like the Shakespeare of philosophy. Um, it, uh, <laughs> he, what he says is it's just rule in the interest of the ruler. Yeah, it's, just, and, it's all about them. But that's, <laughs> not, that's not Trump. And I, I get so tired of people saying that authoritarian Trump. It's just, it's just so ignorant. It's just so ignorant. And if anyone would read Richard III, they would know what a tyrant was. So is that what you were saying, Stephen Smith? Study this like St. Thomas More did so that you know it when you see it? Yes. I mean, I think Thomas More and Shakespeare would say this is a crucial part of anyone's education. You have to know what tyranny is. You have to know who, what a tyrant is. You have to realize this is a, a possibility and a reality, and you have to learn how to resist it in yourself and and, and in others. It, it's just crucial. Um, Shakespeare's big source here was Thomas More's history of Richard III, and um, and there's just a deep connection between them on this on this theme. They both hate tyranny and, and love of liberty. And they're both interested in the, the character of, of leading figures. And why, know, why do they hate, you know, the trains run on time. The food gets delivered. It doesn't. Ah, it there doesn't. You, go. you gave away the game. It doesn't. <laughs> it's not. So remember this. <laughs> uh, it, there's a, uh, sometimes tyranny arrives amidst a, a contention about what is the source of legitimacy. What what makes you a rightful king? I don't think that's what's going on in these plays. They all believe that it's you're born to it, or you're born to somebody who conquered. Right? Those are the two ways. And the ones who conquer, they always pretend they were born to it or claim that anyway. Well, you know, today what's going on is uh, the most despotic thing that Donald Trump did in the eyes of people who believe we've arrived at a new age is that he defied the professionals who really know how to run the government. And that means that there's a rival source of legitimacy. Although, I, I just, I've got to interject. I told my Boston Globe interlocutor last week, we always have to fairly represent what the other side says to re repudiate it. The other side believes Trump intended a coup on January 6th a proposition for which there is not sufficient evidence anywhere yet in the record. Could be developed, I suppose it could come. He gave a speech, and 725 people who were in that throng went and invaded the Capitol, and some of them had murder in their heart. But he did not intend that. At least I have not seen any evidence of that. Have you, Dr. Arn? No, and, and that would have been... Uh, stupid, right? I, I mean, tyrannical. I, I, if I do done think, so. without going into the details, I think that Trump was persuaded of some things that were true and some things that were not. And a narrow legal argument, uh, and I think, and it was a judgment, too narrow for these purposes, persuaded him that he was in the right. But having said that, he didn't, what did he say to them? Peacefully, right? And, and, there was, if it's 725 is the number, they were guilty of criminal trespass, and they should be prosecuted for that. And that's a crime, and it's not the worst crime, but it's a, it's a bad one. But the rest of them, you know, they, not only do they have the right to stand around out there or, or walk where they wanted to go, the Constitution protects that right as a high and sacred thing.
so I, you know, I don't. I, the point is, this picture of tyranny, whatever whatever is in the heart of Donald Trump and his accusers, you know, it's hard to say. But what's in the heart of Richard III is revealed to us by William Shakespeare. I agree. And, but where does that, obsession that, that you get to look at that thing better than you could see it on your own, or anybody, even Shakespeare, could see it? He just divines what would it take to move these actions, and and that that's so. When you study Richard III, you get this poetic explanation of the impulse of the tyrant. The one that I know that's. Uh, you know, maybe let's say almost as powerful, is in 1984, at the end, when the representative of the inner party, O'Brien, tortures Winston Smith into the complete destruction of himself. And that means self-destruction. The pain couldn't do it. It just prepared the way. So the thing is, this wish to dominate, that's, and that is the heart of it. And, and uh, you know, I think that that wish is abroad in the land. I don't think it's abroad in Donald Trump in its most dangerous form, for sure. And so it's, it's good to think about that, right? Here's this guy, Richard III, and he is in the families that are contending for the throne. And there's a long history now of them killing each other. And then this little boy becomes uh, king, and he is one of the people appointed to act for him. And it's not an accident that he's the one who emerges with the, the power, and it's also not an accident that he comes to grief. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, that we will come back to. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hilldale Dialogue is about the evilest guy in literature, Richard III, some would say. Uh, Winston uh, uh, opponent and what's his name in in 1984? It's um who's who's the bad guy in 1984? Uh, O'Brien. O'Brien. O'Brien has a uh, a counterpart in Richard III. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hillsdale dialogue continues right after this. Somewhere in the world, news is happening. You'll hear it here first, but only if you're here. When Hugh Hewitt continues. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hilldale Dialogue underway with Dr. Larry Aaron Prenton of Hilldale College. And, of course, Dean Stephen Smith, who is our leader through the Shakespearean history plays. Dean Smith, um, Larry and I have talked at length about his class on tyranny. Uh, we've, in fact, I think we've done the reading list during one of our cycles of the Hilldale Dialogue. How often do you have to run into tyranny? Well, whenever you teach um, Thomas More and Shakespeare and Milton, uh, it comes up um, repeatedly. And these are these are artists and thinkers who want us to see uh, this, to see tyranny clearly, and to be able to study it actually. And in Shakespeare, you know, we have some other tyrannical figures that come up. We have uh, Macbeth for example, is called a tyrant, uh, King Leontes in The Winter's Tale. Um, there's a whole gallery of figures like this. So I have and, a question for you. When Potter Stewart was asked to define pornography by the Supreme Court, 
He said, I know it when I see it, which is not a definition. It's an, a prudential judgment. How do you know a tyrant when you see one? Willingness to kill in the service of that desire for domination. Nicely put. Dr. I mean, it's, it's the killing, right? Like, that's the thing. Or I mean, it, it, so to the extent that it involves uh, a, a judgment about the intention of the person, uh, and, you know, it doesn't decisively do that. It's just in, in the interest of the ruler. Uh, th- that means you watch what he does, right? And, and they, uh, like Winston Churchill, for example, I can prove this because I've spent a lot of time at it. He was always seeking to establish authority in forces outside himself. And, and you know, he had awesome powers in the Second World War. As soon as the war turned to the favor of the Allies, he got a bunch of them repealed on the, on, on the, uh, over the objections of the Parliament. And he just said, this is not what we are. I should not, no one should have the power to arrest someone and hold them without trial. So the, the question on the modern state, how do you distinguish between people who call Putin a tyrant, Xi a tyrant, and Trump a tyrant? What would you ask them on which to defend? Well, he, I mean, uh, you, you actually just have to ask yourself the question, which tyrannical thing did Trump do, right? Uh, that is to say... Where did he violate the law to overcome, to, to get his own way and serve himself? And I like to point to people, I'm a little more practical than you academics. Putin assassinated people on British soil using poison, and Xi has sent Jimmy Lai in, uh, to his prison forever and imprisons a million Uyghurs against their will. That's a tyrant, right? I mean, we're not even, we're not in ice cream cone ty- tyranny here, Dean uh, Smith. No, I mean, I think with Richard, um, you know, the th- one thing that Richard brings up himself is whether his tyranny comes from his freedom or from, from his nature. Uh, we're told he was born with teeth in his head. <laughs> so uh, he came out of the womb ready to bite. Uh, and also that he was born feet forward. So he, he came out ready to, to move, ready to act, ready to do. So tyrants are just a product of their genes? Well, this, he, he brings this, this subject comes up, um, but it's pretty clear in, in both Henry the Sixth, Part Three, and this play that Richard III is choosing um, freely to serve himself alone, to do everything for himself alone, to kill for himself alone. So is he born bad, though? Do we ever get to that point? Uh, certain characters think he was <laughs> his own mother kind of brings it up as a possibility <laughs> but yeah uh, that's a giveaway yeah that's right but no i think shakespeare is always um treats freedom with with the utmost seriousness i mean richard sort of uses some of his, his issues almost like an, an excuse or a rationalization but at the bottom is this extraordinarily strong will extraordinarily strong desire and the willingness to kill so the plot of richard the third next don't go anywhere america the tyrant in action uh you can learn a lot from this stay tuned to the hilldale dialogue with 
President Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, Dean Stephen Smith of Hillsdale College, all things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. You're in the middle of a non-stop action-packed information blitz. The Hugh Hewitt Show is coming right back. I'm Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. This hour of the radio is devoted to Richard III and our ongoing series, all of them available at HughForHillsdale.com. Or if you go to iTunes and ask for the Hillsdale Dialogues, they will come up in reverse order. And so you can go back uh, a couple of months and you can start with the History Plays with Dean Stephen Smith and President Larry Arn of Hillsdale College with me as their avuncular, if untutored, host. I want to go to this tyrant in action segment what evil zest you say about him stephen smith uh to catalog the ways for us that richard the third demonstrates evil well when i said evil zest i guess i just mean that this guy is a bustler right this guy's got energy uh, initiative <laughs> they're not going to go out you know roll out a you know leadership tips from richard the third book or something but he's impressive in a lot of ways and just to hit a few highlights uh, he's able to woo and marry uh, the wife of someone he murdered. Like that's an accomplishment. Um, Why does he want to do that? For love or for position? Oh, for position. Okay, and just wanted to make sure people knew he's not. He didn't fall in love. He just uh, this was a good means to an end. Now he's he's sort of in love with himself. He's like, was ever such a, a woman wooed like this? Was ever <laughs> such a woman won? He just he sort of amazed at himself at that point. That is. By the way, yeah. ego of that sort is a pretty good giveaway for a tyrant, right? Yeah, see, it's the conquest, <laughs> see. Right. That, you know, it was useful to him to marry this woman, but the conquest was on his mind. But he did not take her by force. He did not rape her. He did not abduct her. He no, that's her. more conquest, see. Yeah. Uh, he says, like, this was, he, he knows, he, he's, he wants to be the goat, right? I mean, in a lot of ways. But, um... That's going to confuse a lot of Shakespeare scholars 300 years from now. He wants to be the goat. They're going to be looking. That's the only thing that survives of the plays, like trying to find fragments of Aristotle. They're going to be looking at that one for a long time. Well, uh, just remember, the, the tyrant is a goat. Finally. Okay. Um, but the, Richard, he also orders the death of his brother, Clarence. Why? I saw that. I said, why? Well, he wants, he wants the crown. Is and Clarence so older? I got, I, he, I, that's what I missed. Yeah, and he he's got the claim to so one thing we left out. Edward the Fourth is going to die young because of his evil diet, according to Richard the Third, and and so Richard wants the crown, and Clarence has got to go. Um, he'll also have King Edward's wife's relatives executed. Um, just other highlights: he sows doubts about the legitimacy of Edward's son. He's going to order the most talented rhetorician he's got, Buckingham, to make public arguments about why he should be the king. He's going to stage a scene where he's at prayer, and Buckingham comes and like, we need you to be king, Richard. We need you to be king. And he's like, I'm praying. Leave me be. And I don't want to rule anybody. He's got this theatricality. Uh, and then, of course, most infamously, uh, he's going to order the death of the young princes in the tower. And... Um, and then finally, he will have his own wife killed, too, so he can make another more expedient political marriage. Okay, let's put the rosy side out there. Number one, we don't know that he killed those boys, right? Well, 
<laughs> I'm going to side with Shakespeare and Thomas More on this one. And also, they did find those those bodies, I think, uh, sometime yeah. recently. Yeah, not, not within the year they found the skeletons, and they, they're not in the tower. Yeah, yeah we don't. So, so the thing is, he bears responsibility. He was the man in charge, and then put that together with the fact that he had the greatest interest in their death. That's, that makes a powerful suggestion. Let's Do you not judge, lest you be judge yourself. I'm just saying, they weren't in the tower. Um, now, th- I am immediately struck by your note, Stephen Smith, of Caesar being offered the crown by Anthony. But I always thought that Caesar legitimately did not want it. Well, I mean, Richard, for, for, for Richard, you know, he, he, this is all part of his, one, one, of the, one of his tools throughout the play is theatricality and part playing. Uh, he's just, he's kind of shameless with these kind of scenes. And one of the things that both Moore and Shakespeare bring out is that he does all this stuff publicly, kind of flagrantly, and people just, they don't fight him. Like, they, they you know, it, it's sort of a, I mean, no one thinks Richard III is particularly pious, so the scene is, is sort of a flim-flammy, and yet it, it works. You know, well, well, stop. And everyone listening is is asking me to ask you this question. But we know that Trump talked about two Corinthians. We know that Trump took the Bible to Lafayette Square. We we don't think of the president as particularly former president as particularly religious. Isn't that the same thing? Well, I mean, the use of a public spectacle for a political purpose is uh, is what Shakespeare is bringing out here. I mean. Uh, what, what Richard is, is he's sort of like a, a playwright and an actor and a conqueror all together. And and he's willing not only to kill the children or order, order the death of the children, but he's willing to play these theatrical roles in public that are kind of nauseating or hard to believe, and yet he does it, and no one resists him, you. Well, that, that's what I'm trying to bring up, uh, to distinguish between a genuine tyrant, Richard III, and the allegation of tyranny by the left about Trump is that theatrical doesn't mean tyrannical because Trump is is most definitely a theatrical man, but it's it's a part of a tyranny that's not even necessary and sufficient. I, do you get where I'm going, Larry? Yeah, well, and remember, there's records, right? Uh, they pour out now. They don't get printed in prominent places much, but just look for look for the look look for the article of Michael Pack about his uh, six-month administration of the broadcasting, foreign broadcasting of the United States. And the point is, they wouldn't do what he said, and yet he had authority through Trump from the people. There was an insurrection in the permanent government against the authority. So the point is, if they were tyrants... They weren't very good at it. <laughs> well, well that, that you could easily get agreement from anyone on, I think. Let me, before we move on, talk about uh, Henry Tudor, because he's showing up now. What, what is Henry Tudor's role, Stephen Smith? Well, he will become, he's the one who will really, he's going to defeat Richard at the, the Battle of Bosworth Field, and he will become Henry VII, and through his marriage, um, end the Wars of the Roses and begin Tudor England. But he's, so he's not a, really he, legit, is he? No, I think he he thinks he's legit, and he's got a claim, and he's going to marry. Um, and Elizabeth is on the other side, and so the marriage is going to um, 
bring an end to the the Wars of the Roses. Maybe Dr. Arnold could shed a little more light on that. But yeah, well, it, remember legitimacy. Legitimacy is by birth, right? And that all turns into a mess. Right? Yes, they're all killing each other. They could. Yes, they all killed each other, right? And so now, what's legitimacy? Well, he's close to legitimate by birth. And then my opinion is he redeemed himself, showed what he was going to be by that marriage. He reached out to the other side and included them in a station that was powerful. Right? Is, then, that is, that's a good test of how someone is not the same character as who goes before him. But does it really confer legitimacy, or rather, it just would be prudential if we all go along with this? Well, we're, so we, we used to think... Uh, before we thought that professional qualifications or expertise confirms legitimacy, we thought that a vote of the people under the Constitution is the source of legitimacy on the principle of government by consent. As I said before, I think that's in doubt in America today. And, and, uh, uh, and, you know, the battlegrounds over that are election laws and all that stuff, right? Not the election of 2020. We're talking about... Well, the way the way the law should work, yes. the founders dis, uh, distributed the power over ele- elections broadly, not in Washington D.C. That means, by the way, that was an act of them giving up power for themselves and their successors, not heirs, in the government. Well, now we're going to centralize it, right? That's happening more and more, and that means that near the center of power, more decisions will be made. That, that, it looks to me like, is a real question of rightful legitimacy. What, what we have in these plays is, it, you know, a lot of people who are close to birth, uh, close to the head of the line. Uh, and see, where does it all start? It starts with Richard II, whose, whose title is, by the way, the only... There are, what, I think, six lines of kings in British history. And the only one who stands at the head of a line who really has an overwhelming and uncontested claim is Alfred the Great, the first one. Yep. Because he was proclaimed by everybody, right? And and so uh, Richard II is the nearest thing to that. And what does he do? He, and and this is a very important point, he... Exiles to enemies, one of them probably really his enemies. They were enemies with each other, and probably uh, Henry uh, Bolingbroke was, was actually his friend. And, and then he does that in order to take Henry's property, John of Gaunt's property, right? And that, that's just, that means that in, undercuts legitimacy of Richard himself, because John of Gaunt and, and the and the House of Lancaster, they hold the title to what they hold by the same principle that Richard holds his title. In fact, in uh, Steve will remember which one in one of those uh, uh, in one of these plays, uh, the Duke of York uh, reminds uh, it must be in Henry the Fourth. He reminds him, "As you are Henry, so I am York." Now, that's the principle of federalism, right? Or yep. of, of, and so legitimacy is not just in, in Britain, it's not just bestowed on one person. That's never true. 
Nope, it's a, it's in the estates uh, of the church and of the the landed gentry, and eventually, after 1832, and the people, right? That's right. And it's when these things get confused, and they, you know, and it started, by the way, with a grossly unjust and impractical move by a silly king, Richard II, and <sighs> and and all of this follows from that, right? Uh, Right down to Henry Tudor, who finds a graceful act. You know, he, he, by the way, starts a line that continues, first of all, because everybody by now is sick to death of this. You know, wow. I mean, literally sick to death, too. And so they're ready for it to stop. They need it to stop. And we, we need to stop here. We'll be right back after the break. Don't go anywhere, America. The Hilltail Dialogue continues. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show. cannot hold and the tyrant falls apart. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt, Dean Stephen Smith of Hillsdale College. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, join me. Dr. Arn and Dr. Smith and I have been going through history plays of Shakespeare. Next week, we will complete that march with Henry VIII. And uh, Dean Smith, uh, can you recap for us? It all falls apart for the tyrant. How? Well, I mean, what helps him get the crown is that lack of trust that Dr. Arnold was talking about, but also tons of fear. I mean, people are afraid of him. But then, the sentence he had a center cannot hold um, when Henry the Tudor, uh, Henry Tudor emerges and uh, war is upon England again. Uh, he is going to, to lose the decisive battle. But he also begins to fall apart um, internally, sort of surprising after all of his ability, but he, he becomes anxious, um, kind of experiences ghosts and visions. Um, he says his conscience you know, has a thousand uh, devils in it or something like that. And, um, and so he's going to um, be haunted, be shaken, but he will fight to the death. Um, and it's noteworthy, I think, that Henry VII really does have to defeat this guy. Um, in order to to bring about the the happy ending for the first tetralogy, I mean Richard goes down swinging right my ho- a horse a horse my kingdom for a horse, and he calls the, the person who advises a retreat a slave like he's just he's a handful. He's not going gently into the night. So what um, does what does Elizabeth the first who sees this play think? Oh yeah. Well, I mean that's that's a that's a great question. This is this is you know her father Henry the Eighth's father. Um, what working the peace at last? Um, you know, Henry the Seventh. That is Henry Tudor, right? He, the night before the last battle, you know, he speaks like this: "I count myself your captain, God." He calls himself the, um, the minister of heaven. He has a providential understanding. He talks about his his watchful soul. So he's clearly meant to be a figure that kind of unites like virtue and holiness. He's being political, isn't he? To bring, yeah, to, to bring about the the ending of the first tetralogy. Uh, he, at least, yeah, he's being time, political I, all the time. Remember, this yeah. is a play about these are plays about politics. And the monarch has the power of life and death. Yeah, yeah. They, they do. And and her, you see, remember, her, after Henry Tudor and the and the defeat of Richard the Second, 
everything was sweetness at light for a long time, except for Henry VIII's beheading two of his wives, one, <laughs> one of them the mother of yeah. them. And, 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 and shattering the Catholic Church in the world, that, that too is on his uh, head. Taking all those monks' property, executing people. Yeah, he's not a good man. We're going to come to that. But she's a monarch, and he's writing about her grandfather, right? That's right. No. That's, her Well, her grandfather. No, yeah. no. Uh, Henry VIII is her father. Right, and Henry VII is her grandfather. Grandfather, there you go. That's and right, so yeah. she sees Richard III getting beat by her grandfather. Does she walk out of that theater thinking Shakespeare's got this right and I like this, let the people see it, Stephen Smith? Well, I mean, some people have said that, you know, the end of the first tetralogy is, you know, some people have thought it was like more propaganda, you know, that this is Henry VII, hooray for Henry VII, uh, and Tudor England. Um, And others say, well, it looks like Shakespeare's trying to imagine and present the kind of a leader that would be needed to bring an end to these wars, to the civil strife. Now you so, have a uh, note. One thing is clear, by the way, uh, in Henry the Seventh, this is as good as it gets ah. after Richard the Second, right? In other words, whatever is the provenance of it, and whatever it lasted, and it was peaceful, and and they didn't kill every third person they met. So that's the thing, rightly, to triumph over. And, and you know, in the end, by the way, it, unless you believe that excellence to rule, or any other excellence for that matter, is heritable, as to say, because your dad was smart, you're smart, stuff like that, or your mom. Uh, unless you think that, then you have to think that hereditary monarchy is questionable, and the main claim for it is that it provides stability. Except it doesn't. It doesn't. And, and, and you know, and remember, he's, uh, Shakespeare is writing in a time when hereditary monarchy is thought to be overwhelmingly the way to go. Legitimate. And yeah. now I got one minute. I got I to gotta ask uh, Stephen Smith this. In my notes, all great tragedies that Shakespeare write follow in the wake of Richard III. Why? Does he learn something from the writing of Richard III that makes him a tragedian? Well, I think that, you know, Richard is the first tremendous, gigantic role and that intelligence and that theatricality and that power of of reflection and action, really remarkable in him. I actually think, though, that the encounter with Thomas More's history of Richard III is really crucial for Shakespeare's development as an artist and thinker and everything grows out of it. More on that next week, Henry VIII, our last of the history plays, unless we count the not-history history plays, when we come back next week. Thank you, Dean Stephen Smith. Thank you, President Larry Arn. All things Hillsdale, hillsdale.edu. Go get your application. Go and learn from great people with great souls about great writers on great things. I'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to The Hugh Hewitt Show. you absolutely, positively need the truth. This is where you turn. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show.